Podcast. I'm your online editor, Christina Sauerborn. This week, I'm here with Matthew Vidal. Uh, Matt is uh, works at Viacom. He's a VP of Business and Legal Affairs uh, for the digital business part of the Nickelodeon Group. So, welcome, Matt. Good Hi, to have you. Well, thanks for having me. I'm glad <laughs> to be here. <laughs> and thank you so much for uh, doing this, and for also. I will say from mentoring me all mm-hmm. summer, uh, I've worked with Matt uh, over the last 10 weeks. It's been a really great learning experience. It's been a pleasure for us, too. You've been a fantastic <laughs> intern. <laughs> uh, so now that we are done stroking egos, mm-hmm. uh, mm-hmm. let's talk about uh, the topic we're here to discuss today. Do it. Uh, so, um, Matt, in working with you, you've uh, told me a lot about uh, CAFA, mm-hmm. uh, which is the Children's Online Privacy Protection Act, yep. uh, and uh, you know something obviously that is considered a lot for Nickelodeon because yep. uh, again, it's the, you know directed at children. Kids so, Network, that's right. Uh, so why don't we talk about uh, just to get us started um, yeah. if, briefly, if you want to for our listeners talk about yeah. how it kind of came into being and the reasons why it was adopted. Sure, and, sure. So back, well, again, first of all, thanks for having me. It's important uh, as near and dear to my heart. I'm an alum. Um, but yeah, as you said, COPPA is a, is a big deal here for Nickelodeon and for any operator in the kids space. It was adopted back in the late nineties, um, when it became obvious that, you know, the internet was becoming, a, you know, very big websites were exploring lots of different areas for data collection. And, you know, there's always been in all areas of regulation, a sensitivity to children and making sure that children are protected and safe. So you know, towards the end of the 90s, the FTC started talking about what they could do, and they came out with this rule that basically governs the collection, use, and storage of what's called personal information, which is a defined term from children online, and children means anyone under the age of 13. Um, and in a nutshell, you know, it's obviously a, a big, uh, it's a big statute, and then it's implemented through a rule. Um, it's a big rule, but in a nutshell, the main provisions are that um, you know, operators of kids' sites have to provide notice to parents about their information collection practices. Um, we have to obtain what's called verifiable parental consent. Again, that's a defined term. We can talk about that later if you want some more information on it, but it's a, it's not just a simple click through. Um, we'd have to obtain verifiable parental consent before we collect any personal information from children, except in very limited circumstances. And in those circumstances, there are practices that you have to put in place to comply with the exception. Um, you have to provide parents with access to their children's personal information and opportunities to delete the information when you do engage in that. Um, you also can't condition a child's participation on any activity on your site on a disclosure of more information than is reasonably necessary to participate. So, for example, if you're offering a game on your site and it's really just a game, you can't tell them, you know, you have to provide your phone number before you can play this game sure. because obviously you don't need to use the phone number to play the game. Right. All right. And the last thing is that you have to post a privacy policy, you know, basically disclosing your privacy practices so that people can easily access it um, and maintain, you know, the information secure and confidential and all of that. So in a nutshell, those are the bigger areas of COPPA. And obviously, there are several of those areas that are more onerous and uh, require more time and attention than others. Definitely. Um, so just going back for a second, um, can you speak more to, uh, you mentioned personal information mm-hmm. and that's, I think a really, really big part of mm-hmm. COPPA uh, is what constitutes personal information, because I know the the new newer version of the rule sort of broadened that a little bit more. Yeah, yeah. so actually that's a great point that I, I should have mentioned. In 98, the rule was passed. In July of 2013, the rule was amended. 
And when it was, it went through uh, several years of public comment from the FTC and people in the industry, child advocate groups, and ultimately netted out to this um, new rule that had a lot of huge changes. Like it really shook things up. One of the things, as you point out, is a broader definition, personal information. So the traditional definition is what you would think of. Any sort of person on the street would kind of think of by personal information, right? It's combination, first and last name, phone number, a physical home address, social security number, obviously. That was obvious. That, those were things where you would basically have to have a field on your website and you would know what you were collecting. The new definition of personal information includes all of that, and then it also includes any audio, photo, or video files of a child. Um, it includes pers- what's called persistent identifiers, which is a loaded term, but basically think of it as any identifier. It's, it doesn't have to be specific, you know, identifying Christina Sauerborn. It could be literally 1245712. As long as that's your cookie number, your device ID, it's persistent across multiple sites. That's personal information now. And under COPPA, before you, before you can collect it, unless there's an exception that applies, you have to get consent. It's a real burden. I mean, that's huge. The internet needs persistent identifiers to operate. So, you know, that was a big blow. And then the other thing that the FTC um, clarified was in addition to um, address, you know, physical address, you also can't collect geolocation information. Now with the proliferation of all these devices that ask you for um, access to your location, uh, you know, they wanted to clarify, look, even if you're not getting a physical street number, you know where the, where the person is standing. That's, right. that's personal information, you know. So it's a very broad definition right now, and thank God there are some exceptions because otherwise it would render any children's business, digital business, um, almost impossible. Yeah. And I mean, especially, as you were sort of saying, with the persistent identifiers, mm-hmm. um, when you think about, you know, on on websites, how it just kind of, you, you don't really have a moment to get permission mm-hmm. most of the time when right. it comes to cookies and other things being, you know, allowed onto your computer. There'd have to be, you know, I think a lot of special considerations yeah. on the business side and, yeah. and for the people who are designing the websites yeah. when it comes to making sure that everything complies. And it works correctly. That's right. I mean, the other, the other big blow that sort of goes hand in hand with that is that in this revised rule, they made the site publisher or the site operator strictly liable for any cookies that are collected by third parties operating on our behalf. So, for example, if a kid's publisher is operating a website and they engage, say, you know, uh, Adobe, which is a very common analytics provider, you know, the site publisher is responsible for any information that Adobe would collect. Um, and Adobe absolutely collects persistent identifiers. You have to. You have to collect persistent identifiers. But this really puts a burden on the site operator to really do a lot of diligence and make sure that, you know, anything that is collected is really only collected in compliance with any exceptions. You know, so it's, it's a huge burden. This big sweeping burden that that was very different from the rule before. Uh, and I mean, obviously, you know, I think generally the goal of in-house counsel is to help the company comply mm-hmm. as much as possible yeah. um, with any kind of um, laws or rules or relevant regulations they need to. But when we're talking about um, the seriousness of COPPA and and how it's enforced. I mean, well, could you maybe, I know it was on Silicon Valley like a few weeks ago, like they were right. talking about like, you know, <laughs> COPPA fines are no joke. Yeah, they're huge. Um, yep. Yeah, I mean, what's, what's funny is that, um, <laughs> thank God, it's uh, the, the, the enforcement actions that have come out so far, um, 
have only really ended in settlement, right? So one big one that came out and is, is very public was a case where the FTC settled with Yelp. And what happened in that case was that Yelp, um, like many sites that you're probably familiar with, it's a general audience site, right? So you would think that, and I think this is what happened in Silicon Valley, they weren't intending to even get children, so they didn't think they needed to comply with Kappa. Right. But when you sign up for an account on Yelp, you put your birth date credentials in, along with your email address and your physical address so that you can um, find out what's nearby you, you give geolocation information. And... For some reason, the person who had coded the app didn't do anything to, to turn off or to reject users who said they were under 13. Oh. So they had this whole database of people who actually said they were under 13. Yeah. And, and for those people, they had actual knowledge that they were collecting information from a child over the Internet that included email address, geolocation address, and a bunch of other things that could be personal information. There was no consent that happened there. So they ended up settling for, I believe... Somewhere in the millions, I think it was maybe one million, maybe two million. That's a, I mean, that's a sizable amount of money. Yeah, yeah. for a company, right. Yeah. For a company where, you know, and, and don't, you know, it's not negligible to bring up the fact that they had to pay for legal fees associated with that and a bunch of other fees that were associated with sort of representing their cause. And, um, yeah, it's, it's not insignificant. It's a huge amount. And that was a settlement. That yeah. wasn't actually sort of the result of, you know, an enforcement fine. Right. An enforcement fine could be as high as, um, I always forget the number, but it's a certain number in the hundreds per violation. And right. the FTC doesn't define violation. It could be how many times I collected from you, Christina, or it could be how many times I collected from any individual user. If they came to the site multiple times in one day, that could be another violation. So it's not defined. It could be huge, very huge. So it's a, there's a huge incentive to comply. <laughs> um, yeah, I mean, absolutely. And, I, and you know, again, you not only that, but I think when you think about even just like the PR issues, exactly. I think that sort of come yeah. up. Yeah, that's, that's sometimes um, even more important. With protecting the brand, I think especially. Yeah. you like, don't want to be the, the the person, especially if your business is a kid's business, that's sort of incorrectly following um, children's protection laws, children's privacy laws. It almost know? gives like sort of a higher burden, I think, yeah. especially when you Absolutely. are like even for Yelp, I think. Not that it's more understandable, but it's, but it's almost like, yeah, right. Like they're not, they're not trying to cater yeah. to children, but you know, when you're, you know, when you're specifically targeting them, yeah. I think it's even that much more you want to be sort of squeaky clean. Safe, exactly. Really, yeah. You know, you, your brand name, your integrity is about creating a space that's safe for children, you know? And so all the players, not just Nickelodeon, but for all the players in the space, that's another reason, right? Like even at the end of the day, if it turns out that you are complying with COPPA, but it looks like you're not. That the press, the damage is done once a press release goes out that says that there's an investigation happening, right? So you always just want to follow, like, you want to be on top of everything. You want to be, like, the gold standard um, so that you don't even risk being investigated and, and sort of what comes along with the doubt that you're that you're um, not correctly following the, the applicable laws. Um, so just sort of pivoting for a second. Um, so there's, you know, obviously technology accelerates very rapidly and I think um you know even in 2013 I don't know whether maybe they might have contemplated Mm -hmm. um all of the developments that have come out over the last few years um and so I guess sort of thinking about that and thinking about you know new products and Mm -hmm. and the digital team and what they develop um what do you think are some sort of unique concerns that come up? Yeah. Well, you know, for context, to, to show you how much, how little the FTC anticipated uh, technological change, up until 2013, 
they said that for verifiable parental consent, it had to be a faxed sheet that was a parent signature. Yeah, you could not email it, you couldn't scan it, you couldn't take a picture on your phone and send it. They it had to be faxed until 2013, which is when wow. they took the big leap and they said you could scan it. <laughs> now you can scan it. Huge. So, uh, <laughs> so you're right. They uh, they sometimes don't always foresee all the technological advances. I think. It's an interesting question. You know, there's a lot of things that, that the industry generally talks about um, and, and, and wrestles with. You know, I think, I think one that you're going to see, two, two jump out right away at me. I think one is geolocation. Um, you know, there are a lot of reasons why geolocation can be a good thing in the kids' space. You know, um, I've heard um, of some kid companies that want to partner with, like, museums or with cities, you know, local governments, and do a geolocation, do an app that tracks your geolocation to point out educational opportunities. So you walk through a museum, and the app tells you, oh, this is uh, Van Gogh, Van Gogh lived, you know, like all of that. Like a tour, yeah. yeah. Or of the city, the same thing, you know, this Statue of Liberty. So, you know, that, you know, I've heard some very compelling arguments about why geolocation um, is too broad, but I don't, quite honestly, I don't think that the FTC is going to budge on that, because you know, it is very specific information about a child. So I think, I think there's going to be tension for a long time, but there's going to come a point where um, industry just has to find a way to get consent for things like that. Um, the other thing I think is, if the FTC thought about it, I don't think I don't think they appreciated or understood. None of us did how things would develop and as quickly. But um, voice and video uh, or visual images of folks over the internet, you know, AR things like AR. Uh, augmented reality. It's, it's, for example, when you hold your mobile phone up to something and, you know, it shows you through the camera view what you're actually looking at, but then through the augmented reality of whatever app you're using, something will happen on the screen of your phone to the thing that you're looking at through the, through the camera. So, for example, you could hold up your phone to the Statue of Liberty and there could be an augmented reality moment where slime on your phone drips over the Statue of Liberty, you know. That necessarily involves sending images over the internet, you know, and we've had a lot of conversations with vendors where the actual technical details don't um, involve sending real images. But optically, that's not clear, right? The FTC and regulars won't necessarily know that. And sometimes it does send images, right? So there's an ambiguity there, and it's difficult to sort of parse between what actually might require consent or what might not. And similarly with the with the um, voice-assisted personal assistance or voice-enabled personal assistance, um, you know, there's, they're, they're starting to become very popular nowadays and folks just speak out loud to a speaker and the speaker sort of responds and plays music and plays a game. And there again, you know, voice technically is being sent over the internet. And so if you had a situation where you were either directing yourself to a child or you knew that a child was interacting with you, you know, that could be a situation where you're collecting voice. And I think again, either industry or FTC are going to have to come to a point where they say, you know, fine, consent isn't required in these certain circumstances, or industry will just have to come up with a way to easily facilitate getting consent in those circumstances, you know, but uh, those are interesting things that weren't really the sort of real-time exchange of photos and videos wasn't happening back in, in 2013. It was like, you take a picture, send it over the internet, right? right? Yeah. It wasn't like a live feed of your image over the internet or a live feed of your voice over the internet the way things are now. Yeah, no, exactly, and I mean, I'm noticing it even just in my use of, you know, social media yep. and, um, and I mean, the availability of the technology is fine. And of course you want to consider all those things if you're a company, when you're thinking about making it available, but then also yeah. now 
even the extent to which it's being used. I don't know mm-hmm. whether it's something that people thought about. Mm-hmm. I mean, I didn't think I would see people live streaming Nowadays, yeah. all the time. Yeah. I mean, it happens all the time. And, and I Skype, think like, FaceTime, all those things all, too. Yeah. And then I think, and it actually really even more now because kids grow up with this yeah. and they have just, I, I think an unbelievable, yeah. almost instinctive Facility grasp of how to use it. Yeah. Um, and, and that, I think, even, yeah. I don't know whether it even throws into question the appropriateness, mm-hmm. but then I think the desire to protect kids mm-hmm. is so mm-hmm. important. And at some point, you know, a, a public policy question that I know the FTC has grappled with is, you know, if you put too many owners' protections in place for sites that are actually trying to be for children then children won't actually go to those sites and they'll go to sites that don't have any protections in place. Exactly. You know, and so that, that's a public policy struggle that the FTC does take seriously. And when there have been opportunities for public comment, you know, obviously folks in the industry um, raise that concern. And, and that's, that's certainly a reason not to impose too burdensome of, of an obligation on child publishers, you know? Yeah, definitely. Definitely. Yeah. Um, okay. So... Sort of on that topic, mm-hmm. um, how, I guess, do you see um, companies sort of mitigating the risk associated mm-hmm. with uh, non-compliance? That's a good question. So I think um, companies, as, you know, as far as I can tell, have always taken, uh, have always taken COPPA seriously. And I think when the FTC upped the notch back in 2013, at first ever, it was like panic in the industry, right? Like everyone was like, well, how do we know? It's, you know, sure. what third parties are collecting? It's invisible. Brand you know? new. Yeah. Right. You know, and, and, and there's a certain acceptance of being held liable for things that you can see, you know, like an entry field, a data entry field, you know. There's a policing that you can do. You know, you feel comfortable when you have certain mechanisms in place. So in 2013, obviously, folks panicked because they didn't even know. But, you know, industry has evolved enough and folks have gotten comfortable enough and there's been enough, you know, guidance where um, I think most sites now use things like, sorry, most publishers now use things like Ghostery or something like Ghostery which really does, you know, let you know what is operating on your site. The biggest yeah. change, I think, is is understanding exactly what third parties are doing on your site, right? I think that there's been, I don't think, I know there's been a huge um, uptick in terms of diligence when um, children's publishers of digital content are contracting with third parties to work on their site. You know, there's a, a lot more in-depth conversation that happens about exactly what data is collected, exactly how... You know, the contracting process across the board, uh, across the industry has also been tightened up so that, you know, when it, when it's a kid's publisher that's working with a third party, there's certain contractual protections that they take, whereas, you know, third, the, uh, the general audience publishers don't. Um, and yeah, and like I said, ghost three scans, things like that, that just confirm your diligence, that sort of make sure that your contract is being honored. And, you know, those things are things that are happening, I think, across the board, that there, there are additional steps that back then seemed to be so, Onerous, but um, I think nowadays are just common practices for like QAing uh, a kid's yeah. digital product. You know. Yeah. Could you um, just to step back for a mm-hmm. second? Could you just for like a minute chat about what Ghostery is? Because I'm I sorry. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> yeah so, sorry. So Ghostery, if you don't have it, you should download it. Uh, actually, I'm not going to plug anything. But but it's We're a free. Yeah, I'm not plugging anything. <laughs> but it is a free version. You can also get probably paid versions elsewhere of. Um, of an SDK that you basically plug into your browser and it runs on the, on the back end of your browser every time you open your browser and it has a little, uh, it has like a little count, like a badge of count, 
counted uh, numbers, and it tells you what exact HTTP calls are going out, or cookies are um, being dropped on your device or being sent off of your device. So, and it tells you to whom they're being sent or by whom the cookie was dropped. Right. So the reason it's, it's good is that, you know, it sort of gives you this list. You think you're just going to, for example, Facebook.com, but then you see this list of a bunch of other third parties that are actually operating with Facebook's consent, likely, um, you know, in the background, and you, you wouldn't know it otherwise. Right. So, so it's a good way of just, as a consumer in the space, knowing sort of what's happening when you visit certain websites. Yeah, and then um, sort of as far as, you know, I guess the other uses of it, too, I think it's very helpful as far as, again, going back to the personal information, because mm-hmm. you're sort of seeing mm-hmm. the invisible, basically. Exactly, exactly. And, you know, sort of, you know, if you see a name on that list, as a, as a company, if you see a name on that list of a product that you're publishing, and you have no idea what that name is, I mean, you have complete control over your product. You can Absolutely. go and find out who that who that is, why they're on your site. You can remove them from your site if you need to. So it's definitely a practice that seemed so um, gigantic at first, but now has become, I think, part of the standard sort of diligence process. Um, so we've talked a lot about uh, sort of the strategies on the back end, the online mm-hmm. design elements. So just sort of for a moment, shifting a little bit, um, I wanted to talk a little bit about the online marketing campaigns. Mm-hmm. Yep, yep. Um, and I, I know you do a lot mm-hmm. of educating. Mm-hmm, exactly. Um, so if you could maybe just yeah. chat for a bit about totally how you know the considerations come to play when totally. they're structuring these campaigns. Totally. And yeah. So those campaign, you know, most campaigns. If you think about the general audience world. You know, there's so, it's such a limited universe of things that they have to be concerned about collecting. Really, as long as you get a, a, a consumer's consent to collect something, you can collect anything you want in the, in the general audience world. So there are great campaigns that operate on Facebook and Twitter and all of that where people can send pictures of themselves and people can, you know, you know, tweet certain things about where they are right now and then get an instant win, you know, that in the kids world you can't really do. So when the teams want to market, you know, they, they want to be competitive in the space. They want to try and do things that are like what the general audience marketing initiatives are like. But you have to be careful because you have to do them all within the confines of COPPA. So, um, so for example, you know, it's very common practice nowadays in the children's marketing space. We do lots and lots of sweepstakes and, and general sort of promotional contests like that. But as a children's company, you want to be sensitive to what data you're collecting, right? Right from the start, when we were talking about the general buckets of COPPA, you can't collect more information than is reasonably necessary to participate in the campaign. So you can't just collect the kid's, you know, address because you want to, because you, you want to know where people are submitting from. You have to only collect what's needed in order to run the campaign, which usually is just um, their first name so you can actually identify them, um, their email address so you can notify them when they win, and their parents' email address. Um, and those three pieces of information actually nicely fall into an exception to COPPA that says that if you collect those pieces of information, you don't need to get verifiable consent as long as you then tell the parent that you've collected the information because their child has entered into a campaign and you give the parent a way of reviewing and deleting the information that was submitted, right? And so, you know, it's a, it's a process of reviewing, working with the business groups that do this kind of marketing initiatives to look at every single wireframe, to see the, the data fields that they're anticipating collecting, to flag if they are making something that's asking for first and last name or any other piece of information that's not technically necessary, you know, for the campaign. 
And then it's a matter of once the site goes live, continuing to do all that I just talked about, scanning it and making sure that there's, you know, nothing going on in the back end that is invisible, that also, you know, because the FTC is particularly cautious when it comes to tracking children because of advertising. So, you know, even more so on these sites that are marketing sites where you're essentially advertising to children, there's a, there's a sensitivity you want to just make sure that you follow. And, you know, again, I think it's become an industry practice to just be very, very careful with all those things. Yeah, definitely. Um, and actually, um, sort of going back to what you said about sort of collecting extra information, I mean, I would have to imagine from a marketing perspective, I mean, marketing and advertising thrives on having, mm-hmm. data. you know, data. More data, data, more right? data. Yeah. So, um, I mean, do you think that sort of forced them to get a little bit more creative when it comes to thinking about, um, you know, obviously there has to be a certain amount of self-promotion. Mm-hmm. There has to be a certain amount of, well, mm-hmm. we have to figure out what they want mm-hmm. In, mm-hmm. in some way, shape, or form, right? Yeah, yeah. Um, well, you know, it's a good point. I I, uh, I mentioned it before, and I sort of glossed over, but one of the biggest thing and uh, most helpful exceptions that the FTC announced when they instituted their 2013 amendment was um, an exception that said you can collect a persistent identifier, meaning a cookie or a device ID, um, on a kid's site if it's for the purpose of supporting the internal operations of your site. Again, that's a defined term. Right. Uh, but basically it means to do the kind of things that you do, right? So to do basic analytics, to do site maintenance, to do to learn about your demo. Right? If you're really just doing it because you want to find out sort of what kind of people like your site, that's one thing. As long as you're not selling it off to anybody, you're not using it for behavioral advertising, which is essentially what this is targeting to prevent. And, and behavioral advertising, for those that don't know, is an example of it is, you know, when you go onto homedepot.com and you shop for a refrigerator, and then every site you go onto after that has a little ad on the side of it for homedepot.com. That's because they tracked you. And they're behaviorally advertising to you because they know that you like Home Depot. So, you know, children's sites can't make use of that. As long as you're not doing that and you're just using cookies or whatever to operate your site at a very basic level, it's an exception. You don't need to get consent or anything like that. Uh, yeah, I mean, I th- and I think that that is definitely makes total sense, but I also think it's an important, you know, consideration yeah. in order to not totally yeah. hobble, I think, exactly. the big industry. I don't it know would be impossible to, to operate. Mm-hmm. Yeah, without that exception, you know, uh, it would have paralyzed the kids' industry, kids' visual industry. Yeah. Um, so uh, we're going to wrap up shortly, but I guess I just wanted to sort of ask you um, as a really, really broad question, um, mm-hmm. when you're uh, advising your clients yeah. and they have a new project, mm-hmm. um, what do you generally looking tell for? them? What are you looking for? Yeah, I think, you know, um, at a base level, the first question is who's the intended audience, right? Like, is this going to be a product that you're intending for families? Is it something that you're intending for a nostalgia audience of the 80s? Or is it a product that you're really intending for the core demo of children? You know, and if it's if it's the latter, if it's the children audience, right, then you run through the gamut of, okay, first, you know, where are the experiences that allow the user to interact with the app? You know, are there any data entry fields? Are there any uh, UGC, meaning user-generated content components, you know, um, that would allow them to submit pictures or audio files? So you walk through sort of all of that, see what the intention of the app is, right, and make sure that there's protections in place if any of those are features that are intended in the app. Then there's the bigger legal component of, you know, working with all the third parties that the, site, that the app wants to 
sort of integrate, right? And so they may want to work with Adobe, as I said, for analytics. So they may want to work with a vendor that does AR, or they may want to work with a vendor that does, you know, certain marketing things, you know, certain third parties that are going to be offering completely compliant services, but you have to vet them and you have to contract with them and make sure you have the contractual protections and that you do scans to make sure that they're actually doing what they say they were doing. Um, so, yeah, you know, it's just a very sort of a heavy front loading of diligence questions and then sort of being involved every step of the way to make sure that all those things that were vetted initially are actually what happens when the product comes up and is developed. Yeah, absolutely. And I, and I even going to your contractual point, I think describing some of this is mm-hmm. really, um, challenging oh, yeah. to say the least. Yeah, just yeah. to kind of make sure that mm-hmm. everyone understands, you know, what's going to, right. And, 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 I think that even when you're talking to people about a new project, you can get into sort of a situation mm-hmm. where you have a miscommunication about, mm-hmm. oh, well, I thought this was, mm-hmm. you know, this is compliant, but no, now you're describing it to me, maybe not, mm-hmm. or like we need Let's to think about, about these extra more. things. Yeah. yeah. Yeah, particularly if a vendor doesn't frequently work with children's businesses. Yeah. You know, so, you know, and, and, and typically the lawyers on both sides are the helpful voices. That's a great, it's a great tool that we offer. It's a great, you know, assist that we offer. Um, and we can help parse through those difficulties that wouldn't necessarily be common to, to folks that are not speaking the language of the rule, the, the copper rule. Um, and we sort of help them sort of piece through, okay, you know, that is personal information, but there's an exception. Or, no, actually, that's not even personal information. You know, it, it's sort of that sort of exercise. So, uh, okay, well, <laughs> I want to thank you so <laughs> much. This has been really, really fun. Been. No, thanks for having me. <laughs> thank you. Your <laughs> talking to you. I know, we have Patrick looking at us, and, uh, <laughs> you know, it's a nice way to culminate the internship. <laughs> there really is. This yeah. is great. Yeah, good. Well, thanks for having me. Thank you. <laughs> The Fordham Intellectual Property Media and Entertainment Law Journal is a publication staffed by the students of Fordham Law School. Our faculty moderators are Professors Mark Patterson and Joel Reidenberg. Our Volume 28 Editor-in-Chief is Alex Kirk. Our Managing Editor is Matt Hershkowitz. Subscribe to us on Apple Podcasts to make sure you don't miss a single episode. If you liked what you heard, please rate us and give us a review. It lets us know how we're doing and really helps our visibility as we continue to grow year after year. For more information about Fordham IPLJ, please visit our website at www.fordhamiplj.org. You can follow us on Twitter at at Fordham IPLJ or on Facebook.com slash Fordham IPLJ. Additionally, you can support Fordham IPLJ and unlock exclusive bonus episodes by visiting Patreon.com slash Fordham IPLJ and becoming a patron for just $1. I'm your online editor, Christina Sauerborn. Thank you for listening, and we'll see you next week.